Welcome, everybody, to the HDR Student Learning Podcast, where we talk about things that are important to your academic journey. I'm your host, Demetra Lattice. Today's episode is about making an impact with your research and building your academic profile. With me here today is one of the academic liaison librarians here at the University of Sydney, Rena McGrogan. Rena, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure, Dimmy. Rena, as a student, when I first heard of impact, I thought to myself, of course my research will have an impact. Because to me, it's the most important thing. Ah, yes, Dimmy, this is common. But claims have been made that up to 80% of scholarly articles in the humanities are never even cited. Back in 2012, Associate Professor John Lamp from Deakin University advised, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Forget publish or perish, it's get visible or vanish. So our topic today looks at building upon your academic and professional profile and the promotion of your work and research. How can we extend just beyond an audience of academia? Moreover, how can we measure this? But let's go back for a minute. Rena, what is impact? Ah, well, that door of dictionaries, the Oxford English Dictionary, defines impact as the act of impinging, the striking of one body against another, a collision, which sounds a bit brutal. Their second definition is much better. Impact is now commonly used to describe the effective action of one thing or person upon another. The effect of such action influence impression, especially in the phrase to make an impact on, which is much more relevant. In an academic context, though, it is important to note the Australian Research Council's definition. Research impact is the contribution that research makes to the economy, society, environment or culture beyond the contribution of academic research. Isn't the Australian Research Council the main funding body for academic research in Australia? Yeah, that's right. The ARC advises the federal government on research matters and has oversight of the National Competitive Grants Program. This program awards funding to academics and researchers at Australian universities. It makes up a significant chunk of government spending on research, over $800 million annually. High on the ARC's agenda is proving that the work it is funding is having an impact. Even if you don't pursue a career in academia, many jobs require you to demonstrate your impact. A quick look at the job vacancy websites, such as Seek, JobSeek, MyCareer, GradConnection, shows an awful lot of job criteria containing the word impact. Why, even in my profession as a librarian, I have to do an annual performance planning and development review. I have to provide my manager with an account of my activities throughout the year and will be asked to prove that what I'm doing is having a positive effect and furthering the aims of the library. In other words, that I'm having an impact. And at the moment, proving that your research is engaging with a wider audience, not just other academics, and that is creating an impact, is an essential part of getting a job in academia or receiving a grant. Our good friend, the ARC, calls engagement the interaction between researchers and research end users outside of academia for the mutually beneficial transfer of knowledge, technologies, methods or resources. Looking especially for research-driven solutions to real-world problems, this can be anything from someone in linguistics researching how better to communicate with asphasia patients, then applying their knowledge from research into practice in hospitals 
or, you know, someone in media and communications researching children's habits and behaviour using social media, then providing primary and lower secondary school teachers with research-based knowledge that better equips them to provide guidance to new generations of young people, especially about ethical behaviour on social media. So as we know, impact is determining how much your research is contributing to society, government policy, culture, the economy, so forth. You have to be prepared to think of ways your research can do this. Also be prepared to partner with industry, not-for-profit and community organisations, and to provide research-based solutions to the challenges they face. So this means in building your academic profile, you can't just publish books and articles anymore? That's right. The publishing of scholarly articles and books will never be superseded. It is still the primary method of communicating new ideas and research, especially to other academics. Rena, what other ways can you suggest to help a researcher engage an audience and start making an impact? Have you ever been to a conference, Dimmy? I sure have. Presenting at them is nerve-wracking, but it's always such a good learning experience and fantastic opportunity to meet people. You said it, Dimmy. Uh, attending conferences is a great way to build your network of contacts and make your work known. So go to every conference that you possibly can attend. Even consider conferences outside your normal discipline. You never know where you will meet potential readers and collaborators. Even before you go, prepare so that you'll have questions to ask and things to talk about. As well as learning new things, you'll then be in position to engage with the other delegates. Most conferences now have pre-event blogs and Twitter posts, and I encourage you to participate in these, especially if you are a shy person like me. It is a great way to introduce yourself to people before the event, and then you can meet up there and you won't feel alone among strangers. If you have the time and energy, make a submission to give a paper or poster at a conference. Papers given at such events are sometimes published as proceedings, and this is a great way to get your foot in the publishing door. If you are really committed, offer to assist with organising the conference. For many years, a friend of mine did the hard slog of organising an annual librarians conference. She was rewarded with recognition from her peers, subsidised fact-finding missions to the US, and lots and lots of friends. Conferences can be expensive, though, so investigate the grants the university offers. You can apply for the Postgraduate Research Support Scheme, which usually closes at the end of April each year, or see if there's anything appropriate in the Scholarship Office's grant database. Your supervisor might have some ideas as well. An effective researcher should constantly be looking at how to promote their work, knowing how to find an audience receptive to your work, knowing how to explain your research in an interesting and comprehensible manner, even to novices like me, and yes, how to market yourself and your work to future employers, grant providers, and possible academic and industry collaborators. A key part of this is getting yourself known, getting a profile. Just as you need to have a publishing strategy, you need a promotion strategy. You need to know what are the most effective ways and tools you can use to get you and your work out there. Rena, what is a researcher profile? A researcher profile is an individual internet profile that provides a user-friendly and efficient way of showcasing your work. The internet is a maze of networking sites, some scholarly and credible, some fun and cultural, 
while others are downright dangerous and predatory. What would be your first choice when choosing an online networking site on which to place your details, Dimmy? Well, since I don't think Tinder's appropriate, maybe LinkedIn? Neither of those are really designed for academic communication. So, how about academia.edu? What do you think of that title? That sounds pretty good. It's not a bad choice. Um, Academia.edu boasts 62,734,022 members as of 22nd of May. Look, it consists of academics, professional researchers, amateur researchers and librarians. And it's an excellent way of finding people, getting their current information and seeing what they've worked upon. Some academics even provide PDFs of their articles and chapters free to download if you complete the free registration to join academia.edu. In spite of the name, academia.edu is not an educational site or even affiliated with a university or government. But I thought anything that had .edu in the URL was an educational institution. And you'd be right to think it. But academia.edu snapped up the edu in their URL before standardisation and legal requirements decreed it could only be used by a school, college or university. It is actually a company with ads and paywalls slowly creeping onto their site. For a subscription, you can access premiumacademia.edu with all the bells and whistles. So they try and tempt me with emails saying three people have cited the article I authored and if I subscribe to the premium package, they'll provide their names. The only problem is I've never written an article. (laughs) Are there better options? There certainly are. Uh, The University of Sydney actually provides all HDRs with a page on their Academic Profiles Online system, also known as APO. Check it out. It's not as glamorous as the pages given to academics, but it's a good start and shows the world that you are a bona fide member of the University of Sydney researcher community. Another important online platform is ORCID. ORCID stands for Open Researcher and Contributor ID. It is a not-for-profit and it's sponsored by over 870 universities, government research centres, NGOs, even publishers um, sponsor it. So it's actually now compulsory for all University of Sydney academics and researchers to have an ORCID ID and the ARC also requires you to have one if you make a submission for a grant. When you register, which is free, you can enter your CV as much as you like, personal details, a list of research outputs, affiliations to institutions, hobbies, even a photo of yourself. If you are concerned about your privacy, you can supply the bare minimum of details or hide your details from public view. I'll talk more about privacy shortly when we talk about social media. But ORCID is not just a great platform for showing the world your work and finding people who may share your interests. It helps with disambiguation. In this case, think about the amount of research output that is generated each year. It is not uncommon for authors to be incorrectly attributed with certain works or to have their authorship overlooked. And this is especially the case if their name is shared by a number of people. And especially if a database only lets you search by last names and initials. 
Do you know how many e-woos come up in a major science database? 171. And none of them are the Eddie Wu who is the mathematics rock star. So let's just take my name. I like to be known as Rena McGrogan, but my birth name is actually Irene McGrogan. To my friends, I'm Rena, while on all official documents, I'm Irene. If I published, some publishers would demand I use my legal name. A lot of publishers also want to include your middle name if you have one. So they'd have me down as Irene Agnes McGrogan. Other publishers only like to use initials, so on those articles I'd be I.A. McGrogan. Already there are four different variations on my name. Rena McGrogan, Irene McGrogan, Irene Agnes McGrogan and I.A. McGrogan. I can put all of these variations into ORCIDs so anyone looking for me can find me under all of those permutations. ORCID also provides a unique identifying number, a number that can only be assigned to you. You supply this to publishers and funding bodies, and regardless of what name ends up on the byline, the article can be correctly attributed to you. Remember, the more exposure you get, the better known you will be. There are discipline-specific websites where it would be great to display your profile. For example, any philosopher worth their salt must be seen on the Phil Papers site. Your supervisor and liaison librarian can advise you about relevant ones if you don't already know them. And we must speak about the elephant in the room. Yes, Google. Google is ubiquitous. Google is almost everyone's first choice when searching for something, so get yourself a Google Scholar profile. Just remember, once you have a Google Scholar profile, Google automatically tries to populate your profile with citations it thinks you have written. So check your profile regularly to make sure it only lists the actual works you have written. Fair to say then, having a research profile is essential to being an academic. Yes, I'd agree with you there. Um, just one thing I'd advise, if you are going to use a researcher profile platform, be very careful about uploading PDFs of your work to them. Does copyright law allow you to put your work online? Usually when you publish an article or a book, unless you have negotiated otherwise, it is the publisher who owns the copyright on your work, not you. And publishers are not very happy if you upload copies of their articles that they have spent lots of money publishing in their journals onto the web. This is seen as another form of publishing, digital publishing, and they may sick the law onto you if you do it. Some publishers may allow you to place pre-prints or post-prints of your work online, and there's a great site called Sherpa Romeo that will show you if your publisher is among them. But even if you are copyright clear, I'd still hesitate to upload my work to a researcher profile site. Many of these servers sit overseas and are not even subject to Australian copyright law and protections. Like Facebook, once you upload a file to their server, it can become theirs. It would be better to upload your work to the university's repository and then put links to it on the researcher profile pages. Likewise, if your research generates a lot of data, consider making it available to other researchers to reuse. Look at the type of licenses available on Creative Commons and then this will inform the other researchers how they can reuse your data and acknowledge you in the process. 
I saw a YouTube clip where one of the most cited academics at the University of Sydney said he owed this to Twitter. Is that something worth considering? Yeah, well, social media, uh, Twitter, Facebook, blogs, YouTube, are important promotional tools because so many people use them. They allow you to connect to others and collaborate with them, to share resources and to keep up to date. And you are likely to obtain more citations of your research and have a greater impact on the community if you use them. You do need to consider a number of things before launching yourself at them, though. Think about your work-life balance. How much time can you devote to using them effectively? Are you willing to put your own ideas out there and risk possible scorn or negative replies? Do you value your privacy more than you need the exposure? And then there are trolls. Trolls of legend are ugly, dirty, angry creatures that live in dark places, waiting to snatch up anything that passes by as a quick meal. Internet trolls hide behind their screens and delight in posting inflammatory or nasty messages with the intention of provoking an emotional response. The best advice is do not feed a troll. Don't take it personally and don't respond. Do not engage with them and ignore them completely if you can. But if it's in a professional context, just keep your cool and respond in a professional way. You keep your dignity even if they've lost theirs. Then which social platform would you recommend for HDR students? Um, it's horses for courses, really. Twitter is great for short, snappy messages and making announcements. You may have heard of Dr Inga Newburn. The thesis whisperer at ANU. I hear she has over 13,000 followers on Twitter. That's her. She says it took three years and 40,000 tweets to make that happen. Dr Mewburn announces on Twitter when she is planning to write an article. Throughout the process, she tweets on her progress or on interesting facts she's found, just to keep the audience tantalised, engaged. Once published, another announcement is made, and this resulted in a large number of views and downloads for her article more than any other article in that issue of the journal. And it was cited within a matter of months rather than years. When using Twitter, Dr Mewburn advises you to have a good biography and a photo on your Twitter page. People really like to know who you are and what you look like. Be active by posting quality information. Have an opinion. Follow and comment on other tweets and tweeters. Done politely and intelligently, it will gain you friends and fans. And think about scheduling tweets for peak times, to and from work when people are on public transport and want to read. Also at lunchtime when they've got a bit of spare time. But above all, never tweet when tired, grumpy or drunk. Twitter is just a stepping stone though. The tweets with posts to blogs, images, other websites, and YouTube get the most clicks. So consider using other platforms too. Such as? Well, if you like writing, how about a blog? You can include much more detail in a blog because you're not limited to 280 characters. And there are academic blogs that are regularly cited in scholarly articles and student essays. The university actually has a suite of blogs that you can post to, 
Or, of course, you can use a software like WordPress and create your own. You would then have to promote it yourself, though. If your work is intensely visual or rich in audio, such as artworks, drama, music, poetry, literary recitals, YouTube, Pinterest, Instagram might be for you. Podcasts are also excellent tools for explaining your research and reaching a wide audience, as you can tell by Dimmy's podcasts. All of this is a lot of hard work, but it is not the end. It is now essential to measure what effect all of this is having, its impact. If you're planning a career as an academic, you need to think about how to prove your impact sooner rather than later. You may even have to build mechanisms into your research that will measure your impact, especially if your work is an NTRO. I'm sorry about the jargon. Uh, NTROs are non-traditional research outputs. Now, this can include, but is not limited to, you know, original creative works, you know, art, paintings, photography, sculptures, architectural works, textual works such as novels, poems, reviews, catalogues of exhibitions, translations, music, and don't forget live performance, you know, actors, dancers, musicians, also, what they call recorded, rendered creative works. Well, this can include also research reports for external bodies, like this can be reports you create for the public sector, for industry, for community organisations. Can you outline the best ways to prove that your research is having an impact? Well, to use the cliché, the ways are many and varied. Traditionally... Traditional research outputs, like journal articles and books, are measured by how often they are cited. Time for a history lesson. Back in the 1950s, Eugene Garfield wanted to devise a way of establishing who were the most influential researchers in a field, and he established the Institute of Scientific Information. He worked on the premise that if a work is cited, it must be having an impact so he created a database that would track down who was citing whom. The more times an author was cited, the more influential she or he is. Garfield's citation indexes began by measuring the sciences and then expanded to the social sciences, arts and humanities. It's now called the Web of Science. Librarians and research support managers and officers use databases like Web of Science and its rival Scopus to obtain citation metrics or measurements. Web of Science and Scopus take a very stringent approach, only assessing the output of a limited range of what they consider the top-ranked peer-reviewed cream of academic journals. They have extended this to determining the impact of journals as well as academics. A high-impact journal is one that contains articles that are highly cited. It is considered prestigious to get published in a high-impact journal. You will find all of these citation databases on the library's webpage under the link called Databases. Uh, these databases predominantly include citations to journal articles, the natural habitat of the scientists, and they don't so much cover books book chapters, encyclopedia articles, working papers. Humanities 
researchers still love to publish in books while embracing all of these other types of publications too, so they're less likely to be picked up in the citation databases. Web of Science also contains a larger number of science journals than those of the social sciences and humanities. This is slowly being addressed by both Web of Science and Scopus, but they're not on par yet. And let's face it, humanities and social sciences researchers often work in a smaller field. Last time I counted, at the University of Sydney, there were 13 classics and ancient history academics, compared to 36 in chemistry. So fewer researchers in the field means fewer people around to cite you. And we also often work alone. To quote Christina Parolin, Executive Director of the Australian Academy of the Humanities, in the sciences, you'll get a research team or a lab and everybody's name will get on the article, from PhD students through to the head of the research team. So in the sciences, you can get people who claim, not illegitimately, 15 journal articles a year. And I won't speak about disciplines that game the system and have been known to credit over a thousand researchers as authors to just one paper. Citation metrics is also a less appropriate measure of academic achievement for junior academics, as their papers have not yet had time to accumulate citations. Now, I really don't want to depress our audience here. No, no, I don't want to depress you. It's just to forearm you. If you know about these requirements, you can plan your strategy for publishing and engagement while gathering evidence on how your research is creating an impact. And cases have been made to consider a wider variety of ways of assessing impact. Google has recently muscled onto the scene. You might have noticed that cited by link under the references in Google Scholar. Well, Google Scholar collects data from a far wider range of sources, not just the top peer-reviewed journals. The downside is it's also collecting from less scholarly material. It's also taking in Google Books, which is good. It has a greater reach, but you sometimes have to question the excellence of the sources. And the citation count is sometimes inflated because it contains duplicate citations and self-citations. An academic named Anne Will Hartzog created a software called Publish or Perish that cleans up the data and duplicate citations in Google Scholar. It's free to download. Just Google it. I keep hearing about a mysterious H-index as a way of measuring impact. Do you know about this? I have heard about it. Rather than just measuring the number of citations obtained for one publication, the H-index is a way of measuring a researcher's output over a number of years. It combines an assessment of both the quantity, number of papers written, and the quality, impact, or citations to these papers. It can and will change as you continue to write over a period of years. There is an explanation of how to calculate your H-index on the library's research impact guide. And there's also great YouTube clips. The H-index can be disheartening for HDRs and ECRs, the early career researchers, as you haven't published a lot yet. Make sure you only compare your performance with a researcher at the same level as yourself. The chap who invented the formula, Hirsch, reckons that after 20 years of research, a H-index of 20 is good, 40 is outstanding, 
and 60 is truly exceptional. Social scientists and humanities researchers can obtain good NPEX scores. It does help if you have time on your side and also a multidisciplinary appeal. Are there alternative ways of measuring your impact? There are, and they are called alternative metrics or altmetrics. Realising the flaws in citation analysis and how it isn't adequate for our disciplines, analysts started looking for alternative ways of measuring an academic's impact. Altmetrics tend to track quantity, not so much quality, and must be provided within a context. Altmetrics use social media and download statistics to reflect the influence of an article or piece of research and the effect it is exerting on a particular field. For example, rather than just measuring how many times an article is cited, might it not be better to measure how many times it has been downloaded as a better indicator of engagement and impact? I heard of a senior academic who published in a major journal. The article hasn't been cited much, but has been downloaded hundreds of times. Turns out it was on a reading list at a prestigious US university, and all the students had to read it. How is that for impact, informing and educating the next generation of academics? There is actually a company called altmetric.com that can track the impact of anything with a DOI, that's a digital object identifier, kind of like a standard URL, or any other standard identifier, like an ISBN or ISSN. It can find mentions in papers, books, data sets, social media sites like Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, science blogs, also the mainstream media outlets, and even the number of times the citation has been downloaded to the Mendeley bibliographic software. Other tools that can reveal online attention include Impact Story and Plum Metrics. The non-traditional research outputs you mentioned earlier are in real trouble. How do you cite a piece of music, art? Well, yes. Um, there are other possibilities and other measures you can use that may be useful, if not as highly regarded as the standard citation measures, but they can help you build a case, and these are considered measures of esteem. Think of options like has your work had an impact on government policy? Is it mentioned in government reports? Is it part of the curriculum or on a unit of study reading list? Has your work received awards or been nominated for awards? Has your work been reviewed, especially by you know, major critics? Can you provide testimonials? So this is where you need to think about using surveys and feedback forms when presenting your work. Has your work garnered positive media attention? And the library subscribes to um, Factiva and the ProQuest newsstand, so it's easy for us to search and pick up people's names to see if they're mentioned there. Have a look at sales figures for your work. This is the sort of information you can obtain from the publisher. Also look at how many libraries hold your work in their collections. So you can check Libraries Australia and WorldCat for holdings of your books. If it's a performance, did your performance impact the economy? 
that is, what were the ticket sales like? Also look once again at reviews of your work. Was the event held in a prestigious location? Obviously, performing at the Opera House would be much more kindly looked upon than performing in your granny's garage. Have you been invited to showcase your work in the community? We have, for example, a philosophy club in Blackheath where University of Sydney academics regularly go to give talks to the locals. All of these can help you build a case for how your work is making an impact. Any final words of wisdom, Rena? Only please don't hesitate to contact your academic liaison librarian if you'd like any further information about the ways you can make an impact and the ways we can measure or prove you are making an impact. We're here to help you. This is your host, Dimi Lattice. And Rena McGrogan. If you would like more information about making an impact, please contact your academic liaison librarian. We hope that you enjoyed and found this episode useful. If you would like more information about topics that affect HDR students, please subscribe to this podcast, the HDR Student Learning Podcast. Happy studying, everyone.